So just a little bit of review from last time so we can uh, bring us to where we were. Uh, last time we took, uh, took some time to talk about some of the forensic or the, uh, or the uh, legal benefits of, of, of salvation. And we talked about justification and adoption. Wonder if somebody could review for me and tell me what, what is, what is justification again? Isn't it a legal term that is applied to the person, um, that they're not going to have to pay for their sin? Okay, right. So it's a, yeah, it's a legal term where, whereby someone is declared not guilty. Now that is, he is not liable for punishment. So, uh, again, that, and, uh, we, we see a lot of legal terminology here from our own system of jurisprudence here, uh, because it's borrowed in large part from, uh, Christian theology, even the, even that very precise language of not being held liable. Uh, you're not, you're not declared innocent technically. Um, and in fact, we're not innocent, you know, of when, when we're justified, it doesn't make us, uh, innocent. It actually declares us to be not liable for punishment, even though we retain, we, we still remain sinners. Okay, and so that's the that's the beauty of justification, and of course, uh, the reason uh, that God can declare us righteous is what? Because Christ paid for the sins. Okay, so so Christ absorbed the punishment that should have been ours, and for that reason, we no longer are held liable. Not not because God just overlooks the sin, uh, but because He actually pours out the punishment on another person, which is Jesus Christ. Of course, in justification, also there's a second benefit. What's the second benefit of justification? Righteous merit. Right. Imputed righteousness. Correct. So not only is our guilt imputed to him, but his righteousness is credited to our account as well. And so we are treated as though we are righteous because that's the expectation. That's that's what is necessary to get into heaven to be perfectly righteous. Of course, that means that there's nothing that we can do to make that happen because again, the standard is that you have never sinned. Uh, not only that you are, you know, a relatively good person, but that you've never sinned. And the only way we can have that kind of righteousness is from without. So we have a righteousness, uh, uh, Philippians 3 8 says that it's not ours. But it's, but it's Jesus Christ's righteousness, uh, that is given to us. Okay. And so that's what justification is. And again, it's important that we distinguish that away from the Roman understanding, uh, which says that justification is something, uh, that must, is never complete. We, we, there's, there's that, that statement, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus never really can be said in Roman theology because you might be cleared for the moment because you've, you're, you're paid up as it were. You said you're, uh, said you're Hail Marys, you, you're Nomen Apatries and, and, and you're, you're paid up till now and we could have assurance if I died immediately, I could, I could get into heaven. But the fact is tomorrow is going to another story because I will have committed more sins and I need to pay up again. And so there's, there's this constant thought. In fact, uh, going to talk about assurance probably next time. Uh, uh, Bellarmine, a, a notable Roman theology, says that the greatest Protestant heresy uh, is 
is, uh, is assurance of salvation. Uh, and the, uh, the reason he says this is if, if you can ever say once and for all, I am justified, uh, then there's nothing to hold back your evil behavior. That was his argument. But uh, as we're going to see tonight, uh, we're going to start talking about sanctification. And uh, we'll start right there in in, in uh, Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And that's, that's the question that we're going to sort of start with here with our uh, doctrine of progressive sanctification. The Roman understanding is if you ever give someone absolute assurance that he is on his way to heaven, then he's actually going to become a wicked person because there's nothing to hold him back anymore. There's no threat to keep him on the straight and narrow. Um, and so the, the, the idea here is that they, they will be fulfilling the prophecy, as it were, of Romans 6. If we continue in sin, then God's grace will be greater and greater and greater because it'll cover everything that we do. And so why not continue to sin that grace may abound? But what's the response that Paul makes? Well, God forbid. May it never be. Uh, and, and, and he adds, because it's not just that you've been declared righteous, but that you have had this seed of holiness implanted in you. You died to sin. You, and, and we talked about this with, with initial sanctification or definitive sanctification. There, there was a moment in time in which you died to the tyranny of sin, uh, to the, to the crippling effects of total depravity. They were, they were removed. God made you new, made you a new creature in Christ. And for that reason, then, we can advance in holiness and must advance in holiness because that's what new creatures do. They grow. And so what we're moving to then is progressive sanctification. That is our growth in holiness. Okay. And so that's our topic for tonight here. And we're on page uh, 42, uh, progressive sanctification. So what, what is this idea of progressive sanctification? Well, let, let me start uh, by, by giving some negative definitions or, or negative descriptions here of progressive sanctification, because I think a lot of people have some, some, some poor ideas about what you need to do in order to grow in Christ's likeness. First one I want to address here is this idea of asceticism or legalistic self-denial. And uh, again, all of these false views have have a modicum of truth to them. So uh, recognize that I'm uh, when when I'm when I'm saying this, this is not the correct view of sanctification. It usually has a piece of the truth in it. Uh, but recognize that this is not the totality of what sanctification is. Sanctification clearly involves denial. Uh, so, so you're, you're, it's, you're, 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 you're pressing yourself down. You're beating yourself into submission. As, as Paul says, we're, we're doing everything, expending all effort in order to flee youthful lusts and, and, and the like. So there's, there's effort that's involved. So there is a denial of sinful impulses. We, we've got to do that uh, in order to become sanctified. It can even, you know, our sanctification can even legitimately, legitimately include the development of extra biblical rules to protect ourselves and weaker brothers. You know, 
I won't do this any longer so that my brother will not sin. You know, and remember right there in First Corinthians 8, it's eating meat. Now that's not usually too much of a problem in the modern day, although there's some, there's some folks out there that uh, might be troubled by eating meat. But, uh, uh, but in that day, it was, it was a concern. There were people who were coming out of idolatry and rather than get even close to any idolatrous practices, they would rather not eat meat because if they started eating meat, uh, they might be tempted to go back to the temple where those, the, where that the fresh meat could be found and start participating in those idolatrous practices again. And so there were some Christians who were apparently saying, you know, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat meat. No, I'm just not going to do it. And uh, are you raising your hand, Pete, or or just holding your hand up? Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, just hold my hand up. That's all. Okay. okay. Sorry. Yeah. So so there's there's folks who were saying I don't I don't want to eat meat. And what does what does Paul say? You know, I'm going to join them. You know, I'll I'll actually refrain from eating meat myself uh, in order that my brother doesn't stumble. And uh, he says I'll, I, I won't eat meat for as long as I live. In order that my, as long as, in order that my brother won't stumble. Um, and, uh, then we move into 1 Corinthians 9, and it's actually, uh, the same kind of, of tension is, is in the, in, in the context of evangelism. I won't eat meat if it's going to create a hindrance to the gospel. Okay. And so what's going on here? That we'll, we'll actually adopt and, and gladly receive these extra biblical rules. For the sake of my brother, for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of my own sin, I'm not. I'm not going to walk down that aisle of the grocery store. And you can. There's a couple of them that you could uh, put on the list here. I, I just won't do that because if I do, there might be a temptation to sin. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Okay. Um, and you know, Matthew 23 talks about doing this for yourself. You know. Tithing even on your spices uh, to make sure, you know, if you have, you have one of those little, we got one of those out in the, uh, out on the, uh, porch there, you know, you've got these, uh, you've got these little spices that come up and my wife pulls off pieces of them, and throws them into the pot and it makes it taste better. And, well, the, the Pharisees would actually tithe on that and you'd say, well, that's legalism. That's Pharisaism. And, and yet Jesus says they, they, Probably should have done that. I think there, there's there's a sense in which there's that's good uh, that they do that. So the meticulousness that's in, involved uh, in in sanctification can be good. However, however, and there's the big the big uh, uh, the, the the but that comes. It is important to note that the essence of sanctification is not simply having higher standards than the next guy, right? All too often, this approach to sanctification betrays genuine legalism, an attempt here to earn merit before God, uh, or Pharisaism, which is a form of spiritual pride that uses adherence to an artificial legal code as a means of garnering superior status or influence or esteem, uh, sometimes in the life of the church or in, in some other context. And uh, there, there's more to sanctification than simply following rules. Secondly, we say here, sanctification is not, on the opposite side, just letting go and letting God. 
And this is a phrase that uh, comes out of Keswick theology, Keswick theology. Um, we've talked about this, we've hinted around it here and there. Uh, there's some times I wish I had a, a marker board that I could, I could write on here, but, uh, in, uh, Keswick theology, the idea is when you get saved, nothing happens to you. Everything is positional. You're justified, declared righteous. You are made positionally holy, but nothing actually happens to you. In order for you to start growing in sanctification, there has to be some sort of a second work of grace. Sometimes that would be called consecration or dedication. And once you take that second step, then you become sort of a, a second-tier Christian who is advancing in holiness. And the and the way to advance in holiness, then, is to simply get your hands off of your own life. You get in the way, so let go and let God. And so... Uh, you just simply, you simply sit there and let God do what, do his thing and, uh, you don't participate at all. And again, there's a piece of the truth here, right? Yielding to the authority of God and to the authority of God's word are essential. Uh, we do want to see, uh, the Holy Spirit asserting himself in our lives. At the same time, we have to be participants in that, right? So sanctification is not a passive attainment of a new spiritual plateau, but an active one, okay? Uh, and so some of the expressions of this idea of letting go and letting God are Wesleyanism, uh, which posits the possibility of entire sanctification. When when the believer comes becomes free from all known sin and no longer needs to struggle with sin, okay? Uh, the, the strivings never cease, okay, right? You know, I, I know there's a song that talks about when, when fears are stilled and striving cease. There, there is no moment in the Christian life where we cease striving. We, we continue struggling and battling with sin, uh, from the moment we're converted until we, until we remove to glory. We battle with sin. Uh, so there's never a point in which striving cease. And I, I just can say, whew, it's done. Uh, and so sanctification is always an active thing, never a passive one. Some charismatic groups uh, posit there's a second blessing that can lift a believer to a higher plane of holiness. And then I have their Kazakh theology in your notes uh, that posits the graduation of the believer from a carnal state into a spiritual state, various co- variously called the victorious life or the deeper Christian life. Uh, they There was actually this idea... Um, yeah, Phoebe Palmer, one of the early pioneers of Keswick theology, uh, came up with the uh, what, what's sometimes called the altar theology. And you've probably all seen it in action somewhere along the way, right? Um, she was she was she was raised a, a Wesleyan, and uh, Wesley taught that you would strive and strive and strive and strive until you reach this place, this plateau of perfection, when strivings will cease. Okay. Uh, usually at the end of a believer's life. But Phoebe Palmer was like, I, I'd really like to get a shortcut to that. So she was, she went on this quest. Her quest was for a shorter way, a shorter way to perfection, a shorter way to holiness. And uh, she found it with, with sort of a rather bizarre look at a, a couple of texts, very distant from each other. One is that uh, uh, the sacrifice, a sacrifice sanctifies the gift. And she reads in, in Romans that if you put 
your that if you offer your life as a living sacrifice, uh, that you can become acceptable to God. And she pairs these together and says, okay, if I can put my all on the altar of sacrifice, then I can reach this, this plane of perfection in this life. And uh, she said, but of course, the problem was there is no altar <laughs> in the, uh, in the New Testament church, right? Uh, there's, there's, you know, that, that, that's part of Old Testament ritual. It's found in Roman Catholic theology, but not in Protestant life. An, an altar is a centerpiece. And so how do you, how do you, uh, layer all on the altar in Protestant theology? Well, she says, you, you go to the front of the church and declare, make a declaration before the whole church. That is your altar. And if you do this, uh, why you can receive this perfection immediately. And so th- this is where this idea of going down to the front of the church and announcing, okay, that, that's what the idea was. You would go and announce to the people that you've consecrated or dedicated your life and you could receive this perfection immediately. Okay. And so this became part and parcel of the invitation system. You know, first they would call folks down for salvation. Then they would call people down for consecration or dedication. And the idea was, if I could get this shortcut, I can reach this plateau of perfection where I can leave, have my hands off and I'm perfect and God is flowing through me as I'm a channel only, uh, as the, as the song goes. Okay. Uh, and this is, this is, this is just a, this is just a, a misconception of what sanctification looks like. Okay. So all these variations, the Wesleyan view, the Keswick view, the charismatic view, Betray a desire, I say, for a quick and exciting approach to sanctification that bypasses the slow, hard, methodical work of mortifying the body, you know, suppressing the lusts, get, getting rehabituating the body, and, and overcoming these besetting sins that continues with painstakingly slow progress throughout the Christian life. But some other tensions that come with this are as follows. Easy believism. Okay. Faith is simply belief, not commitment. Anybody can say a prayer, but if you want to be a super Christian, you got to take the second step. Uh, but what that basically says is there's a lot of people out there and all they have done is say a prayer and they're insulated. They're, they've got their ticket to heaven, but they never advance in righteousness. And if I read the scriptures correctly, the scriptures say that those people aren't believers are believers. And so you get this, this crowd of people who say, okay, I'll, I'll say my prayer because it gets me in. Uh, but then, uh, they, they don't count the cost. Uh, they don't, uh, commit, uh, to the life of faith. And so we find that, uh, uh, they, in some ways they're insulated, uh, from the gospel from that point forward. Secondly, there's antinomianism. You know, I, I probably should become holy, but it's not like I have to. So why should I? Uh, and so there's, there, there is this expression of antinomianism, lawlessness, yeah, anti-law. Anti is, you know, anti-namos is the Greek word for law. So anti-law. So lawlessness. Um, doesn't matter what I do. It's all under the blood. And you even hear that language sometimes. Denials of perseverance. You can have the first work of grace without the second one. You can believe in Jesus, but you never have to make any commitments. You never have to advance in holiness. You, you don't have to do anything. You, you can, all you do is say your prayer and you're good, man. And that's, that's terrible. 
thing to tell someone. In fact, it's a deadly thing to tell, say, to tell someone. And then I think it's also a general excuse for sin in the lives of professing believers. You know, the, I know, I know it's a, it's a popular song here that, uh, perhaps, I don't know, I, I always, I always run in, run into risks when I, when I go after a song here, because it might be one that you like or that you sing even in your church here, but only a sinner saved by grace. Well, I'm more than just a sinner saved by grace. Okay. I, I am a new creature in Christ that is advancing in holiness and in Christ likeness because it's my duty before God and it's my privilege before God to do so. Okay. So I'm not only a sinner saved by grace, um, with no change. No, I've changed and I need to change more. And that's what we need to be constantly telling ourselves in sanctification. So if it's not, if it's not uh, uh, asceticism or legalism, if it's not letting go and letting God, then what is uh, sanctification? Well, I say here, it's the advancement of the believer in his spiritual life according to two tracks. Negatively, putting to death the deeds of the body, the sinful nature, and positively by growing in Christian graces. Okay, So there's some assumptions here. We've already talked about this work of definitive sanctification, which is the flip side of regeneration. In in regeneration, we spring to life as new creatures. In definitive sanctification, the old man dies. Okay, so the old man dies and the new man springs to life. Definitive sanctification, regeneration. And so the old man, what we were in Adam, is dead. And we're new creatures in Christ. And the governing impulse of the new man uh, is holy. At the same time, there remain in us sinful tendencies within us that need to be subdued. There's some debate as to what we might call this. Some call this the old nature. Uh, others uh, find this confusing because the old man is dead, but the old nature lives on. Uh, that that gets rather confusing. Many of the Puritans use language like the old man is dead, but the remnants of sin persist. I, I kind of prefer that kind of language because I think it, it 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 causes us to think of sin properly as something that is still there, but it's but it's but it's strong. It's its strength has been broken. Okay, and so I like to think in terms of the remnants of sin. We're never freed from the remnants of sin in this life. They're still there. Uh, they're clinging to us. At the same time, they're not dominant any longer. Okay, the, the dominant impulse of a new creature in Christ is that of holiness. And so Romans 6 tells us this. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Act upon who you are. You're a new creature in Christ. You're dead to sin. So act like it. You're alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, don't allow sin to to cl- climb back uh, into a, a place of ascendancy in your body in, in your in your in your life. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments to righteousness. Stop doing that. You know, stop 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 allowing yourself to sin. Stop giving in to sin. Rather present yourselves to God. As someone who is alive from the dead, your members dedicate as instruments of righteousness to God. Sin shall not be a master over you because you are not under the law of sin and death, but you are under grace. 
Therefore, act like it. Okay. And so we, we see here this, this setting aside and uh, this uh, 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 renewal that take place. And the existence of these two opposing tendencies uh, give rise to a conflict that persists to life, through life. The flesh, the old nature, the remnants of sin, sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are in opposition to one another so that you don't do the things that you please. Okay, And, and you've all been there, right? You know, I sinned. I didn't want to sin. I, I hate this idea of sinning. And after it's done, I just hate myself for having sinned. Well, that's the conflict. And in fact, if you don't have that conflict, there's something wrong. You know, per- perhaps there's, there's no life there. We ought to have this ongoing conflict where the sin is, is struggling to, for the ascendancy and the old, and, and the new man has to say no, say no. And uh, and Romans seven, I think, perhaps is one of the uh, uh, the uh, the best expressions of this. Um, in fact, it's re- it, you, you, it, the the rhetoric here just captures you. It's 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 good writing, if I can put it that way, because you can actually feel the tension in the words. What I am doing, I don't understand because I'm not practicing what I'd like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now I no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Because I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the will willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then this principle that evil is always present with me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this conflict? Okay. And the language, it's just, it's jumbled up. Sometimes it's hard to follow. And I think that's the point, right? You actually have to, you have to, what was that? Say that again. I'm fighting with myself and myself is winning and losing. It's just, it, it just, it's just, and, and sometimes that's what life is like, right? When, when you're, with your struggle with sin, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from, from this body of death? And he responds and here's the conclusion. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, because on the one hand I with my mind am serving the law of God, on the other with my flesh the law of sin. But God's giving the victory gradually, slowly, but it's just incrementally, painstakingly slow. But there's progress being made, and that's the uh, that's the uh, the confidence that Paul has that sanctification is in fact progressive. You're progressing, okay. And so the process of sanctification then is forwarded when we as believers enabled by the Holy Spirit and through ever increasing faith progressively put to death the deeds of the body, conquer. And this is a word that, that, uh, uh, B.B. Warfield used, extirpates sin, <laughs> extirpates the power of the old nature. It's one of those onomatopoeia words. He sort of you sort of feel how it works, you know. You're extirpating sin. 
Uh, and it's a, it's a great word. I like it. Uh, Romans eight. If I, by the spirit, if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be discovered disqualified. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And so what what does sanctification look like then? Not letting go and letting God, but working really hard to prevent sin in my life. Doing whatever is necessary to stop sinning. Empowered, certainly, by the Holy Spirit, but I'm participating in it as well. So, uh, so it's, and, and I think that's, that's the whole, that's, that's, that's the, uh, the, that's the happy center here. It's not just me doing stuff. That's legalism. It's not just the Holy Spirit doing stuff. That's this idea of Keswick theology. It's me working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit through the word to together, little by little, incrementally, keep sin at bay, and actually push it back, okay? That's what sanctification is intended to look like. And so we we can we can fall off on either ditch, and it's important that we don't do that, okay? And, uh, I, you know, I think, and, we, and we've got, we've got both tendencies, I think, even within, you know, the, the, the evangelical church, right? There are those who are saying, you know, hey, don't be a legalist, don't, don't don't be so uptight about sin, you know. Don't be a legalist. Well, that's a problem because you do need to be uptight about sin. You need to be concerned about that. You need to be concrete. You need to be fighting it continuously. And then there, there's the other there's the other side to say, hey, just you know, and you know, it, it it's it's the opposite. You know, and, and they're, they're actually trying to, well, do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. And if you, if you do this, 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 and this, you'll, you'll be holy. And well, no, just doing those things doesn't make anybody holy. Okay. It's, it's, it's putting those two things together. You working in concert with the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Word of God to become more like Jesus Christ. That's what progressive sanctification is. So how is it then? Uh, that we get uh, this uh, uh, sanctification. I'm going to borrow here from J.I. Packer's uh, little book, uh, Keep in Step with the Spirit. And he says there's basically three elements to sanctification. You know, I, I want to be more like Christ. How, how am I going to get it done? Well, firstly, he says, is humility. Humility. Biblical view of sanctification recognizes that man, even a regenerate man, is not innately capable of sanctifying himself. We've got this engine within us that impels us towards holiness, but we need the Holy Spirit. So John 15 says, He who abides with me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. Say here, uh, spiritual life is tied with the believer's union with Christ, and uh, we receive at salvation the indwelling of the whole Godhead. Uh, it's not just the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. Um, and so, uh, the, so the work of God begins. It's attributed primarily to the Spirit, but the, rec- rec- the, the rest of the Godhead is involved as well. And, uh, 
I think it's sort of important here. Maybe this is a caveat. It's not in your notes here. To recognize that this this ministry of the Holy Spirit is not something that, how should I say, comes in waves, okay? Um, I think this is an idea that a lot of people have, that if I... If I, if I pray really hard, there'll be a sort of an overwhelming wave of the Holy Spirit and gives me some sort of superhuman strength to, uh, to, uh, combat sin. And that's not how it works. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like weightlifting, right? Okay. You, you know, you, you, you work and you're, and you're constantly, you're constantly exercising and the, and the, and the exercise, this continuous, uh, participation in the life of God in Christ, reading your Bible, praying every day, causes you not to get surges of strength, but rather just makes you stronger. Okay, and this is the kind of strength that the Holy Spirit supplies. And I, again, we're, we're I think we're captured by this idea that there's got to be some sort of a quick way to conquer sin. And so if I pray, then, then maybe I'll get this wave of Holy Spirit strength. But that's not the way, that's not the way you become strong physically, and it's not the way you become strong spiritually, okay? Uh, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is a, is a slow and methodical thing as you cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, you cultivate these virtues, uh, that you find, for instance, in Second Peter chapter one, this is where the strength accrues. This is where the strength comes from by a constant participation in the life of God. Okay, so so you abide in Him, and He in you. You bear the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and as you do this, you are actually enabled and made capable of combating sin successfully. Uh, Romans 8, you are not in the flesh, you're in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So then, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you're living according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you are living. Okay, And again, this sort of bleeds into a discussion we're going to have next time about assurance. How do we get assurance? Well, we get assurance because if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you, you end up having this confidence that, in fact, I truly am alive. And the reason I know I'm alive is because I can see evidences of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, the virtues, uh, the disciplines of the godly life starting to emerge. Second Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that image from glory to glory, not just automatically, but as from the Lord, the Spirit. So the spirit is at work. And so we have to have the humility to recognize that we can't, uh, of ourselves, uh, become like Christ. There has to be a, 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 a syncretistic arrangement. You are participating with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. Um, the filling uh, the passages, like Ephesians 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
intimate that the believer is not to be arrogant and self-serving, but should humbly defer his natural will to the Spirit's voice in the new nature. So to be filled with the Spirit is, again, it's, it's not that there's some sort of event whereby you can sort of get filled up like, you know, like Popeye or something. You, you take this spinach and suddenly you have this spiritual power. Uh, but rather, being filled with the Spirit is simply, I think, a metaphor for obedience. Uh, it's, it's not some sort of a magic idea. But rather, it, this is, this is a, a participation as, as the title of J.I. Packer's work, where you keep in step with the Spirit. You obey the Spirit. Uh, you are guided by the Spirit through the Word. And in doing so, you advance in holiness. Now, again, I, uh, there's a, there's a great article. I probably should put it in here, but a great article was written a few years ago by Dr. Combs, a member of your church, of course. Uh, and uh, about the feeling of the spirit, a lot of confusion about this idea, and uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about it. Uh, I just simply want to say that this is this is an idea that's sort of been rendered magical over the years and has been overplayed. Um, and uh, if I can if I can uh, put this out here in a single paragraph, uh, many theologians develop the idea of the filling of the spirit as a highly conditioned event or series of event that we seek. So if we, you know, we, we put together this formula, we pray a certain amount, we do this and that, and all of a sudden we're going to get this, this surge of spiritual strength because we're filled with spirit. Went to a, uh, you know, a revival meeting many years ago now. And, uh, uh, there was a, there was a fellow who believed this, this idea of the filling of the spirit and, how do you get that? Well, uh, you, first of all, you get your consecration and you get filled up with the spirit. You're in a, in a, in a, in a temporarily perfect state. And then over the time, you know, it gradually erodes. In fact, uh, Evan Hopkins, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the theologian of Keswick would actually talk not only about the filling of the spirit, but the leaking of the spirit. That uh, was kind of a strange idea here that the Holy Spirit would actually leak out of you over time, but you have to be, get filled up. And so uh, there was uh, there was a period of time where uh, a lot of fundamentalist churches would have these revival meetings twice a year in order to get filled up with the Spirit. And again, I think there was probably some bad theology associated with that. Went to a, a like I say, I went to a, a a revival meeting, and there was a there was a fellow on, uh, and, the, and there was a there was an invitation given and the, the preacher said, so how many of you right now in terms of your holiness would call yourself a perfect 10 on a scale of one to 10? And I, I, I confess I was really curious. I, I wanted to see who was going to raise their hand. So I looked and, and, and there was this one guy just waving his hand. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and the, the idea here, of course, is that he had been filled with the spirit that moment. And so he was. He was honestly not 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 proud of the fact, but he was. He was yes, I'm here. I'm filled with the spirit tonight. And uh, and you know, it's just a really dangerous approach to sanctification that you can that you can get these surges of strength from the Holy Spirit that can that can put you on a on a spiritual high. You can become sort of a, a, a gnostic, uh, semi perfect person. Uh, but it's probably best 
to view filling as the believer's everyday suppression of his sinful will so that he can exercise his regenerate will under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Filling is not some sort of an elusive event that is experienced on rare occasions after a battery of stipulations has been met. It's the common experience of believers living in humble obedience to the Spirit's directives found in the Word of God. And you, you don't have to, you don't have to work it up. Uh, you don't have to have some sort of a frenzied crisis moment. Uh, uh, this is something that can be yours routinely by simply reading the word, praying, and doing what the Bible says. And that's, it, it, it sounds kind of boring, but that's what sanctification is. I think God intends for it uh, to be in, in practice. Any questions on that point up till now? Probably some of you have had some real experiences with that kind of an invitation system, but uh, uh, I think sometimes that's been misguided. Okay, so humility, firstly, but then active obedience, okay? And I think, uh, I find that a lot of people are surprised when they look in the scriptures and find out how many passages talk about Engaging in good works. It's just, it's just an overwhelming thing. In fact, I'm teaching through the book of Titus right now at a church in Columbiaville. And, uh, this, this idea of good works, those very words, uh, show up in the, in the book of Titus nine times. It's a major theme of the book. You need to engage in good works, good works, good works. And it perhaps surprises us a little bit because we're, we're sort of conditioned to say it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, washing of regeneration. And so good works is almost, it almost becomes a, a bad idea. Uh, but that's not true at all. It is true, of course, that good works that I accomplish cannot earn me a place in heaven. Now, if, if that's what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, saying that good works are bad, that, yeah, you're right. That all of our goodness, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags when it comes to justification, when it comes to receiving newness of life. But the idea of uh, eschewing good works is an idea foreign to the scriptures. He's created us in Christ, in Christ for good works, right? Okay. And so we should be engaging in them. And, and sanctification, part of what is sanctification is, is working hard to engage in good works. Okay. So how do, how do I do this? Well, I have to be actively obedient. And uh, before you can actually start being actively obedient, you have to know what you're being obedient to. So the first step here is that we have to master a standard of obedience. It's the Bible, right? The Bible tells us what we're supposed to do. And so we have to spend our time in it, right? So sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So there is a sense in which reading our Bibles is a means of grace whereby we achieve sanctification because we learn in the Bible what it is we're supposed to do. The word identifies sin, firstly. The word of God, James says, is a mirror that reveals our flaws and our deficiencies. And so we look at ourselves in the mirror of the word. And uh, if we're believers, we, we don't just walk away. That we fix what's wrong, right? That's that's what a mirror is for. Why you have one in your bathroom morning after you get out of your shower? What do you do? 
Do you look in the mirror? Why? Just to admire yourself? Well, sometimes. But, but <laughs> no, <laughs> the reason you look in the mirror is to find out what's wrong and, and do whatever you can to fix it. There's, there's often very little that you can do to fix it. But, but, but you, you work hard to, to fix it, right? Well, that's what the word is like. You, know, you look in the word and you find in there a mirror and you find things wrong and you fix it in a spiritual sense. So the word is a mirror whereby we identify sin. The word cleanses from sin. Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word. Okay. So how, how are we sanctified? We're cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. And this is one thing that's uh, sometimes it's hard for us to see the benefits of reading our Bibles. Um, you know, sometimes you, you can go a long time and you, you know, reading your Bible in the morning, you read a chapter or two or five and you know, you say, you know, not, not, nothing really happened today. You know, it was just sort of, I worked my way through five chapters, but I didn't really get this, this spiritual surge. But oftentimes that's how sanctification works. You, you, you pick something up. You pick bits and pieces up along the way. There were some things that were reinforced, perhaps a few things that you learned. And, and you do that over and again and again and again and again and every day, even though it, it, it seems like not much is happening. You're being cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. The water, the word's just pouring over you. And just the, just the act of reading can actually cause you to advance in holiness. And the goal here then is to be presented in all of our glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and blameless before God. The word, thirdly, through the medium of the Spirit, transforms the believer into the image of Christ. Second Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face behold again as in this mirror, this mirror, the glory of the Lord that we see uh, detailed in Scripture. And we're being transformed into that same image from glory to glory is even from the Lord, the Spirit. So the first step here in being actively obedient is to know what the standard of obedience is. And in order to do that, we have to familiarize yourself, ourselves uh, with the Bible. And then, having discovered what the Bible says we should do in order to become like Christ, we go after it, right? So in direct contrast to this Keswick idea of being still or letting go, Scripture describes the process of sanctification as one of aggressive activity. On the Spirit's part. Now, again, don't hear me minimizing the role of the Holy Spirit. He's still the sanctifier, and he still is a source of strength here for us. But he reveals the sanctification, it reveals the process, process of sanctification to be a mutual effort of the believer and the Spirit together. And we're both active in this. And just listen to this, 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 this collage of passages here that talk about the activity. Listen to the, to the verbs of effort uh, that show up here. If you're living according to the death, you will die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Second Corinthians 7. 
having these promises, you know, having read the scriptures and knowing what they say, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. Scour yourself. Clean yourself up. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to engage in good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, okay? And again, this comes right on the heels of this statement, by by grace you have been saved through faith, that's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, not in order to earn our, our justification, but because we have been justified, because we have been justified and made new in Christ, we should be earnestly pursuing the good works uh, that uh, that God has prepared for us. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because God's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And there you see the syncretism, right? The, 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 the participation. You work hard because God's working in you. Okay. So both of you are working. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mutual participation. Philippians three, there's this, this, this running metaphor. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching for, forward, straining to what lies ahead. I press towards the goal. The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, put to death. There's that phrase again. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And it's, you know, this, this, you, you get this picture of the person that's, you know, picks up the knife and just plunges it over and over and over again. Put it to death. Get rid of it. First Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain. That you not do certain things. So it's not just that you do certain things, but you not do certain things. Sexual immorality being one of several. Second, uh, Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, zealous for good deeds. Okay, so this, so once we know what the scriptures say that we ought to be and ought to do, we, we, we pursue it wholeheartedly. Okay. And the result then, and this is the uh, gratifying last point here in this, in this discussion here is that there's a change. Biblical understanding recognizes that perfection won't happen in this life. It's not until Christ returns. Okay. That we are perfected, but this does not mean that we should be pessimistic about the Christian life. We never achieve perfection, but we're approaching it. We're approaching it. We're becoming like Jesus Christ. And that's, that's a real thing. It's not just an elusive phantom. We are actually becoming like Christ. So the Christian life is one of gradual and inexorable growth in Christ likeness. We're in a constant chain state of change. I think I've said this before here. Uh, the, uh, uh, sanctification is not measured in days. It's, it's measured in decades. And, and, and the idea here is that, you know, if you're just looking at a, at a, at a, 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 a it's kind of like watching the stock market, right? Yeah. You, you could look at any one given week and say, Ooh, that was, that was a terrible week. Or the next week, wow, my, my stocks went way up this week. And then next week, oh, 
boy, oh boy, I lost everything and then some. And 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 if you if you're if you're looking at the stock market that way, it's just it's a miserable miserable life. You know, there's just ups and downs and all. But if you're able to, after you know, you had your your stocks in there for a number of years to look back and say, you know, you see, it's it's sort of a jagged line, but it's it's moving moving up. And, and and that's the way you measure your sanctification the same way. Any one given week might be a miserable week, or it might be a home run week. Uh, but if you're but if you're measuring your sanctification in weeks, uh, you're going to be, be discouraged frequently. But you should be able to look at the Christian life and say, wow, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I was uh, because I am becoming more like Jesus Christ. Change will occur. Um, and so we have these, these, these verbs of transformation, uh, that are part of this. Uh, Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become, become conformed to the image of his son. Second Corinthians three, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed or changed into that same image from glory to glory and with ever increasing glory. We're, we're becoming more and more like Christ, just as from the Lord, the spirit. And then the command here in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, because it's an accessible goal. We can be transformed. And so, and so sanctification, um, you know, as much as we might want it to be a, a, a something that we don't have to do much for, or there's real shortcuts to. It's just not the way it is. Nonetheless, there can be great reward in simply doing what the scriptures say. And, and I, if, if I if I can use a phrase that uh, my dad used with me and I used with my kids, steady gets the job done, right? You know, and, and, and probably the most valuable people that I see in the life of the church uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm an interim pastor right now and my wife and I go home and we talk about the steady people, you know, the, not, not the ones that are just sort of full of pizzazz and not the ones on the fringe, but the ones who just come steadily, regularly, week in, week out, serve the church and are doing their best to become like Jesus Christ. And, and those people are the, 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 the foundation stones of that church. And it's a beautiful thing. And so it takes time, but aspire to be like that. Uh, be, be that kind of a person who is growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and becoming like him. Okay, so that's what sanctification is all about. Any questions that you have about uh, the idea of sanctification? I got a little bit into preaching tonight, but... Uh, Hopefully you don't mind that. <laughs> okay, well, if not, we will see you next week. Same channel, same place. And uh, we've got two weeks left, and hopefully we can uh, wrap things up here to everyone's satisfaction. Okay, have a good week.